Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us and challenge us and call us, that we might be your people better. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. The story was told something like this. Uh, my daughter Hannah and I had a great Dane named Samson that we dearly loved. And Samson, as it turns out, was well named. He was big and strong and muscular and, like his namesake, had a penchant for wandering. We built fences. We tried chains. We tried dog runs. We tried everything to keep Samson at home, but he would dig under the fence or climb over the wall, and it drove us to distraction. So we bought the best-selling book on the market on the subject of dog training. No Bad Dogs was written by the famous British dog trainer Barbara Woodhouse, who raises Great Danes herself. One night when I went upstairs to tuck in Hannah, she had a sad expression on her face. And she said, Dad, I know what Samson's real problem is. Let me read you the paragraph. And she read, in a dog's mind, a master or a mistress to love, honor, and obey is an absolute necessity. The love is dormant in the dog until brought into full bloom under an understanding owner. Thousands of dogs appear to love their owners. They welcome them home with enthusiastic wagging of the tail and jumping up. They follow them around the house happily and to the normal person seeing the dog, the affection is true and deep. But to the experienced dog trainer, this outward show is not enough. The true test of real love takes place when the dog has the opportunity to go out on its own as soon as the door is left open by mistake and it goes off and doesn't return home for hours. The dog loves only its home comforts and the attention it gets from its family. It doesn't truly love the master or mistress as fondly as they think. True love in dogs is apparent when a door is left open and the dog still lays happily within earshot of its owner. For the owner must be the be-all and end-all of a dog's life. Or to put it a different way, selective obedience is not obedience at all. It's merely convenience. Now, first things first, do not go home and leave your door open to see if your dog loves you. That will end badly for most of us, and that's not the point of the story. But I wonder if that idea makes sense to you. Selective obedience isn't obedience. It's convenience. Our dog, Frisco, is a great big Great Pyrenees lab mix, and he is similar. He seems to be very obedient when we're around because he enjoys the attention, because he knows he'll get punished if he steps out of bounds, because he loves the comforts when they're convenient. But when we're not around, he becomes less obedient. It becomes less convenient for him to stay obedient. When it suits him, he can go through the motions with the best of them. Sit. Sure, I was tired of standing. Stay. 
for now I wasn't going anywhere. Come, do you have a treat? But that's not obedience, that's convenience. But here's the switch. Maybe we're not just talking about dogs anymore. Because sometimes, if we're honest, I think we may see that our obedience is also more of a function of convenience. I'll, I'll be good, sure, for what I can get. I'll be good because I don't actually have the time or space in my life for the consequences. I'll be good because it's, it's actually just easier. I'll be good so I can stay out of the doghouse. But that's convenience, not obedience. But let's back up. Let's see what Jesus has to say about all of this and review our series as well. Uh, this summer, we are working our way through the parables of Jesus because that's one of the primary ways He tried to teach His disciples how to be more like Him. It's how He tried to teach us what the kingdom of God is like. And remember, these are short little stories, little common everyday stories that a teacher would just sort of drop there in place. Sometimes they are easy and obvious to understand and apply, but more often than not, they are not all that easy to even recognize, let alone understand, let alone live out. And because of their simplicity and their ordinariness, they're easy to ignore and overlook. What's more, some of these stories have become overly familiar to us, and so they've lost their edge. But remember, Jesus is using these as tools to try and change people. In other words, He's asking us to hear them, sit with them, enter into them, and finally respond to them, which means we have some work to do in order to live them out. Last week, our parables took a little bit of a change. The earlier ones, the kingdom of God is like a seed or a sower or a, a treasure. Those were easy ones, happy ones, good ones. Last week, there was a little, a little bit more bite in the parable. And today, we're going to have another one as well that'll kind of stay in that same genre. And so, if you would, I would encourage you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 18. Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. Uh, today, context is important. What has just happened earlier in chapter 21 is Jesus has just celebrated His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday uh, is what we celebrate when we celebrate this. He's, he's walked, come in on a donkey, and the crowds were going wild. Then He goes straight into the temple, and He cleanses the temple with a whip, overturning carts and stalls. He casts out all the money changers who are taking advantage of the people, especially the poor. And by doing all of this, he very much upsets the religious leaders and the religious establishment. Then Jesus leaves. It's the end of the day. It's been a full day. And today our passage picks up with him coming back in. And it'll start in kind of an odd place, but it'll become important. So let's read Matthew chapter 8. 21, verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. 
Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him. And they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Amen. 
as our passage begins, there's a couple different things going on. First, Jesus ends up teaching sort of a living parable as He walks back into Jerusalem, that they are to have a fruitful faith. And He illustrates that by cursing an unfruitful fig tree, and it just withers and dies. And Jesus concludes, He comments that if you trust and pray, you can move mountains, at which point a mountain shows up. Jesus enters into the temple, and the opposition appears. Because remember, the day before, Jesus came into Jerusalem like a conquering hero, and He had the audacity to upset everything in the holy temple. So by this point, those who have had their status quo unstatus quoed have now had time to recover, to, to replot a little bit, and now they're ready finally to respond to this person. And so we are unsurprised that the religious leaders then come to Jesus wanting to know by what authority He's doing all this. Who died and made you high priest? Because, of course, if we can get Him to admit that He doesn't have any authority, the people will see Him as He is, a rebel, a charlatan, a fraud. And if He names some authority, well, then we can just poke holes in that because we know we didn't give it to Him. So either way, this is a win-win for us. In moving toward an answer, Jesus then points them toward John the Baptist and John the Baptist's authority. Now, they're not big fans of him either, and yet they start to sense the trap. If they say John the Baptist doesn't have authority, then the people are going to think that they're frauds because John is clearly from God. But if they say John the Baptist's authority does come from God, he does have authority, then Jesus can just claim that. So either way, they're kind of stuck. So they withdraw their trap, and Jesus tells them that he doesn't have to answer either, which then leads right into these two parables about two vineyards, about two different kinds of workers, and yet all sort of telling the same story. So let's talk about each of them in turn and then see if we can't figure out what this means for us. The first one about the two sons, I've always found this one to be tricky. Do they get the right answer and they're not living it out very well, or do they get the wrong? Jesus is upset, but it's not totally clear whether it's because they got the wrong answer or because they got the right answer and they're not living it. Because you can sort of argue it both ways. I think that's going to get clearer in a moment. In Jesus' parable, a father comes to one of his sons, tells him to go work in the field. And the first son gives a surprisingly audacious and offensive answer, no. Uh, that's a slap in the face today. In that culture, it was much more than that. I mean, just wisdom, even if that is your answer, you don't say it, right? I mean, you can find a better way to say it than just no, right? But after a time, the son starts feeling bad, or the show he was watching ends, or he gets bored, or whatever it is, and he goes out into the field and he gets to work. The father then goes to a second son, asking him to go out in the field. This son's a little bit more sneaky, maybe a little more dismissive, maybe a little bit more calculating. And so the son says yes, but doesn't seem to have any intention of doing the work. And so he simply doesn't. He wants to look good. He wants to say the right thing. He wants to seem like the good kid, and he wouldn't mind getting dad off of his back, but whether through negligence or nefariousness, he has no intention of doing the right thing. And Jesus' question makes it pretty obvious who's right. 
which of these sons did what the father wanted? Not which of these sons said the right thing or were obedient, but simply which, which of these two sons did the right thing? Clearly, that's the first one. Now, notice a couple things here. First, this parable has an echo in the prodigal son story, the parable of the prodigal son. The first son in both stories start out wrong, but then repent and turn back. The second son in both stories are, is a little more concerned with looking good and seems less concerned being good. Ironically, the second sons have more trouble being in relationship with the father. Second, notice how the people around Jesus fit into this parable. Clearly, the first son represents the outcasts that are continually being drawn to Jesus. Those who maybe initially said kind of their no to God, but who have repented and been brought back into faithfulness through Jesus and His way of life. The second son looks a lot like these religious leaders, and many others for that matter, who want to look the part, who want to say the right things, but then who have more trouble living out a real, authentic faith. They have more trouble engaging with God as He moves near. They have a more unfruitful faith. It's interesting, these second son people look faithful without actually being connected. They have trouble loving God and being loved by God. Or, or to put it in other words, they are obedient when it's convenient. The first son people don't always or even often look the part. They're not always the ones we would include, but they're always trying to move towards God, be connected to God, recognizing that God has moved near them. They're always striving to be obedient and thus fruitful. The second son said yes, but didn't mean it. The first son said no, and yet also said yes in that moment of repentance. Their repentance was their yes. Actually, this is one of the things we're going to be talking about uh, in the fall, how our faith is about more than just the result of, of saying a prayer or accepting Jesus or being in. Not that any of those things are bad, they just stop so short. And this parable illustrates the problem perfectly because our faith is about so much more than just saying the right thing once. It's about a continual turning back towards God. It's, it's about a way of life. It's about, most importantly, a God who comes to us and chooses us and loves us. For the religious leaders of that day, and our day too for that matter, it's too often easier to look the part than live it. And what's true of them is too often true of us as well. And yet Jesus is calling us toward faithfulness. Jesus is calling us toward fruitfulness. Jesus is calling us to follow. But let's keep going because there's a second parable here. It's another vineyard. It's another landowner. This time the landowner has built up this vineyard, done all the work, and then found some farmers, some tenants, some stewards to work the land, to be paid for their work. But of course, the agreement would be at harvest time, I get the harvest and then I pay you. Well, the seasons change. 
The time to collect the harvest comes, and so the landowner sends some servants to collect the fruit. Those tenants, they seize those servants, beat them, and kill some. Our landowner, showing them mercy, giving them a second chance, sends more servants, assuming bigger servants, more of them. And the tenants still behave the exact same way. At which point, our owner, showing way too much patience, sends his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. And the terrible tenants seize him too, and they kill him. And Jesus concludes, what do you think happens next? To which our religious leaders, remember, that's who we are in dialogue with here, they re-engage and they answer, well, the master will bring them to a wretched end. Now, before we see what just happened, I want to connect some dots for you. Uh, in that time, the prophets were sometimes divided into two different groups, kind of the early prophets and the later prophets. The early prophets like Joshua, the judges, uh, Samuel, maybe some of the kings. The later prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all those, kind of the minor prophets in there as well. All of these prophets were working to help the people recognize that God is near and to turn the people back toward God. So part of Joshua's job, the judge's job, was God is here, let's all turn back to Him. Part of what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all those others were trying to turn the people back toward God. And then, of course, God sends His own Son, who also was trying to turn the people back toward God, help them recognize that God is here. Which means, if you aren't pointing people toward God, you may be one of the bad tenets that Jesus is talking about. And it's at this point that those religious leaders see that Jesus has been talking about them. And in a truly ironic moment, that is the moment that they then take their place and try and take the son out of the garden in order to plot to try and figure out a way to kill him. Now, before we make their, their same mistake, Let's also think about how Jesus clearly is talking about us too. Let's recognize that sometimes we do what they did. Let's recognize that sometimes even we are bad tenants. God has entrusted us with our time, our abilities, our lives, and sometimes we have the audacity to forget that it's His. God has entrusted us with our families, our relationships, our neighbors, and sometimes we forget that they're His. God has entrusted us with our community, our church, our world, and sometimes we forget they're His. Somehow in all of these, we become too focused on how they're ours, they're for us, they're about us. And we forget that sometimes we might simply be tenants, taking care of what's been entrusted to us. And there are moments we can feel it. There are moments we can feel it because sometimes God calls us to act, and we balk, closing our ears to God. Because again, sometimes obedience isn't obedience, it's merely convenience. But the question still remains, why is this so important? 
brings us, I think, all the way back to the fig tree. Because remember how our passage began, with a fig's call to faith and fruitfulness. You see, maybe the reason for obedience isn't just so that we could try and be better or look the part, but maybe our obedience is how we live out our faith. It's how we become fruitful. It's how we follow Jesus. Maybe the reason we are to be obedient is because that is how we show our love for God and how we receive and experience God's love better. Not so that we can look like we're in, but so that we can move toward God and receive a God who moves toward us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do confess even now that sometimes our obedience to You looks more like convenience. Sure, sure, we'll pray. Sure, sure, we'll read our Bible. Sometimes we'll even go to church, but it's because it's convenient. Not always out of our love and faithfulness to You. And so, Lord God, we pray even now that You would again be stirring our hearts that we might be changed. Give us such a love for You that our obedience flows out of the excess of that love instead of simply going through the motions. Lord, we look to Your Son, whom You sent, who was obedient, not because He had to be, but because He chose to be, all the way to a cross, so that we might experience your love too. Lord, help, help us see that as the model, that we would be a people of service as we express your love to ourselves and to others. We pray all these things in his strong name. Amen.